Hey everyone, welcome to Week Notes by Unstill. This week is our end of 2020 season one finale episode. Maddie and Richard join me to talk developer fashion, Christmas food and imposter syndrome. Let's get to it. I think you should get a plaque on the front door that says developer shed. <laughs> That's class name. If you put developer in front of anything, it instantly becomes cool. You've, you've changed your office space because before you were standing with the door behind you. This is not my office. This is my two days a week office. Jane has the standing desk on Mondays and Fridays. Okay. And I have the dining room table, which is not, which is not as good. So you need a developer shed? Well, it depends. What, what would be cheaper? Developer shed or a divorce lawyer? <laughs> I think the shed probably be cheaper. Well, what I actually want to do is because we never really use this dining room table for anything, is I want, whenever we get the sunroom added on here, I want to change this into like a nice office space. Now, Jane is not as easily convinced. She feels that it should be a, uh, some sort of dining table. Per- Can you not get something that, like a combo between a dining room table and a standing desk? Like you push a button and the middle of it rises up or something and it flips. No, it'd be better if it flips. So like all yeah, Richard's exactly. like work stuff is attached like permanently. Yeah. There's a button and it flips around and then uh, it's just a dining room table. I think we've just found our uh, our new product for 2021. Well, yeah, we want to start the product team. So this is what we should obviously start with is dual purpose office dining room furniture. Harry suggested last week that monitors should come with, he called them happy lights, you know, the, the seasonal affected disorder lights. They should come with lights behind them that give you that brightness so that developers always feel happy. Maybe, I don't know, I haven't got a happy light. Have you got a happy light? No, I've got a ring light that kind of, it's bright as about as far as it goes. I don't know whether the happy lights are special or not. I thought they put out 5G signals. Well, there is that. You look like 5G's got to you, Matthew, and I know with this like baseball cat beer combo. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it has to keep my, my lockdown hair in, in place and the beard. Well, what can you do? You get a cut. My uh, my appointment is scheduled for January. Of course, it's scheduled for like January 4th or something like so. You're going to be going back to your lockdown hair. Ted Danson is going to be returning in January. <laughs> Let's shave it off. As a middle-aged man with her, I kind of like, while I can still grow her, I like to grow her. Yes. Enjoy it while you still can. Although you're going to be one of those annoying people that turns like 85 and still has a full head of hair. Possibly. But then I looked like I was 12 until I was like 35. So, you know. You win some, you lose some. Exactly. I'm getting, I'm getting the sweet rewards now. Well, there's that. And there's my new um, my new sort of moisturizing routine. Oh, wait, hold on. You can't just say new moisturizing routine and then not explain it to us, Richard, in great detail. So my wife has for many years berated me for just using a low grade moisturizer on my face because apparently, you know, unless you're spending 20 quid or something, it's not doing any good. I have switched to a, you know, a slightly better man's uh, orientated moisturizer, but I had run out. So I said to Jane, oh, you know, you get some of you in the chemist. So she came back with a kit with seven <laughs> items. Uh, well, two of the items, two of the items aren't ready for the face. Uh, well, there was a face cloth. Uh, and it was body wash but then we had five items for your daily slash weekly face maintenance so we've got this stuff that's described as supercharger which you're apparently meant to rub into your face before moisturizing in order that you will feel energized when you get up in the mornings wow so you supercharge it and then you moisturize it and then i've got like um, some sort of pen thing for drawn under my eye or this is incredible information do you know (laughs) I, i have to say richard I think it's working. You're, you are looking incredible today. Thanks, man. 
I have never put anything on my face like well I know I have but not in years and I probably need to start you don't moisturize now um, I don't moisturize should I yeah no I don't moisturize either Rebecca is forever telling me that I need to moisturize and I just say can you just let me grow old gracefully but our skin is kept soft and supple by the warm glow of LCD monitors and you know, we'll be doing this till we're set in our 70s so it'll be okay I don't know guy okay. I think you uh, I think you both need to take a look at yourselves and uh, you know ask yourself a question do I need to start moisturizing? And the answer is yes. I feel that maybe, you know, the instant induction is not, it's just not spec'd out well enough because I feel that some of these life lessons maybe need to be passed on to um, developers along with, you know, obviously how to dress in a developer fashion. You know, I think we should also start to look at you know, developer grooming. I think we need to explain developer fashion, Richard, because uh, we talk about it a lot on the Instill Slack. <laughs> people don't really know, people don't really know like the origin of, of developer fashion and where it all started. I guess it all started back whenever there was this trend in the wide world to wear uh, bum bags across your chest or, or wore bum bags anywhere, essentially. I think Richard rebranded them as developer bags and that's really where it all started from. I'm going on to ASOS and looking for the most ridiculous outfit you could find. And then, like I said, if you label it with developer in front of it, then it instantly becomes cool and applicable to our field. It makes you better at your job as well. Right. This is a joke. It's not like there's there's nobody in the company that actually wears the developer fashion. The developer fashion isn't a joke. I guess this is real life. <laughs> this is serious business. <laughs> there's a few stylish developers and I still I've got some nice developer trousers which are like multicolored blue and pink and black. And uh, Richard wears developer cardigans that go down to his knees. You've got like your base developer fashion, right? Which is what we all know, which is the black t-shirt as being supported currently by Matthew. The fleece as being currently sported by yourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like the jeans and just like hiking boots or trainers. Now, at a base level, it's hiking boots, I think. And then I think, you know, as just people start to elevate their game, you know, obviously you've got like people with nice sneakers. You know, that's obviously a good thing to aspire to. I suppose if you were to take, uh, if you were to talk about developer fashion, what, what we really send here is just like about flamboyance, right? It's about getting, it's about breaking the chains and uh, getting away from the black t shirt and the, and the jeans and just that same old, same old, you know. And I mean, it's, I obviously do wear a lot of that stuff, but given the opportunity, like I would come to work every day, you know, in a, in a yellow suit. If I actually felt that, that there was going to be enough energy, like, you know, coming off coming off me and, uh, you know, I think it's good. I think it's uh, good to break away. You know, if you look at a lot of conferences or even pictures of our office, you know, sometimes it can be a bit just guys in you know, dark t-shirts. Obviously, uh, there's developer fashion, but then what way should a fashionable developer come to work? What do you mean, like transportation or how? Yeah, what, what, sort of trans what sort of transportation should it be? Like parkour or? Um... I think now it has to be an electric scooter. This is the only mode of transport. I tried one in Copenhagen at Cotland Comp, and it was class. It was so good. And uh, the sooner we get them in Belfast, the better. So what you're saying is skateboards are out, and electric scooters are in. I'm just afraid of uh, needing to go to the dentist after going on a skateboard now. I feel that I would just fall and die or smash my face up. So especially in the way to work, it's not a good look coming into work, you know, with like a big red face. Yeah, what happened to you? Oh yeah, face planted on a curb. And, and then especially if you have your if you have your MacBook in your bag, that's always the big fear. You fall backwards and your 15 inch MacBook Pro is your landing pad. Well, I think, yeah. if you pay, I think if you paid for it yourself, that would be the worry. But obviously if it's a work laptop, you don't worry about it quite as much, right? Mm. So, so what you're telling me is these laptops are disposable. <laughs> well, well, this I don't, changes I don't everything. Know that. This changes everything. <laughs> <laughs> you heard of people. <laughs> yeah, but of course your journey to work is from the kitchen into the back bedroom. So 
you just walk in your slippers as your transportation to work. And this is true. This is uh, this is my lockdown shoe of choice here. It is the uh, Croc with the little heel retainer pushed forward, so they are easy to slip in and out. Very comfortable. And the choice of the medical professional as well. Yeah, I'm ready. I I am actually ready to work in the night and go. Feel, you know. <laughs> that's all you need right pair of shoes I'm ready Dr. Bell we'll see you now <laughs> Dr. Bell I'll see you now <laughs> uh, anything to get out of the house like I tell you man Oof. Christmas food yeah love it I haven't eaten any I'm not even like a wee cheeky mince pie no that's sad well uh, yeah it is actually I don't really like mince pies I used to I was the same I used to be like I don't like these I don't like the mince pies but in reality I've never really tried them and uh, somebody made me try one and I was like hold on a second these are delicious I like my mince pies uh, warmed in the oven with a dollop of cream. Well, I have been eating mince pies since before Halloween. So (laughs) 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 as soon as they, uh, as soon as they arrived in Sainsbury's, like in Sainsbury's, they only had at the end of October, it was just a very small shelf of Christmas goods. As soon as that appeared, I acquired myself some some Stalin and some uh, mince pies. And I have been doing my best to eat as many mince pies since then but obviously i like them on a regular basis so i don't heat them i don't have cream i just you know i think there's only so many calories a man can take in so uh you know if you're gonna have one every day at 10 o'clock with your coffee like i mean i think just just have a mince pie like. i always wondered who was buying all that christmas stuff back in october and we found the person you're the reason why they keep doing it richard and why they keep bringing it earlier and earlier because somebody's buying it so yeah so uh, obviously i've tried quite a few mince pies i'm not sure i have a firm recommendation have you considered making your own mince pies no i forget that I mean, I am all for, if somebody wants to make mince pies and bring them to the office, uh, obviously that's quite hard at the moment. But if we were in the office and somebody wanted to do that, I endorse that behavior. What other uh, other Christmas foods? Uh, so I had a wee Christmas dinner last Sunday. I was just like a wee sneaky uh, Marks and Spencer's stuffed turkey breast. So I wanted to go out of my way. So I went down, the, I went to Marks and Spencer's with the sole mission to buy a turkey feast sandwich. Sadly, they had no turkey feast sandwiches left. So I had to go for a three bird roast, which I would not recommend. But yeah, I also got some other Christmas goodies and they were good. Um, the only disappointing news I got today, today's Alistair Delivery Day. You get that dreaded text message which says three items are unavailable and it was my three bottles of Schlur. And that made me very sad because as a, as a non-alcohol drinker, what else can I drink but Schlur at Christmas? I feel, Matthew, you missed this news this morning, but the shop in Anna Hilt has reopened and it's reported that they're selling three taboo donuts for $1.99. And what makes this story relevant? Slur bottles for £1.10. So my sister reports. So you could just nip down, get a few donuts, slap a couple of slurs into the back of the car. Just hear, and then you, you drive home and you hear that tinkle of the slur bottles in the boot. You're just like, <laughs> yes, this is it. This is the sound of Christmas. <laughs> I'm telling you, my eyes have been opened here. <clears throat> I literally thought there was white grape and red grip, but I am now um, browsing on the Slur website. It took me a while to spell it correctly to get it into the <laughs> to get it into the internet. <laughs> but here you've got like white bubbly, uh, you know, pink bubbly, whatever flavor they might be. Um, walk me through the Adams family Christmas dinner. Then you know, do we do you have starters, or is it just because you eat so much at dinner time you just go for the the main event or? Well, assuming we were having people around, we'll usually have smoked salmon uh, as a kind of aperitif starter uh, around about noon. And then about two or three o'clock would be when we'd probably have the main event. And the most important thing for us is quantity of meat. So you need to have turkey and ham 
and cocktail sausages as a minimum uh, with your main course, plus also the sausage meat stuffing, which is which is crucial. Um, now, whenever my my granny was hosting it, she would always have a roast beef as well, and that went down that went down really well. But obviously now that she's she's passed on, sadly, so uh, that kind of tradition has died. Uh, with her and we don't go that far but certainly at least four different types of meat um, has to be on the table approved <laughs> approved <laughs> there was like a whenever you were whenever you were just walking through your, your meat selection there and it was just yep. like Matthew had his eyes closed and there was just like a wee dreamy look on his face I think it's just like he was smelling the meat <laughs> my uh, my friend told me that for Christmas they have a Christmas dinner um, you know like like you said but they have steak with their Christmas dinner that was a game changer for me I just think like if you do your Christmas dinner with just a good sirloin with it like i'll just be top quality yeah if anyone's looking for a carrot recipe i recommend um heston's christmas carrots it's good it's good that's a game changer for christmas day because you're gonna you can do it the day before do you need your bunsen burner is there any like special equipment like a heston's can you make them there's going to be some random piece of chemistry that's required i actually feel a lie it's not heston it's um oh. tom tom carriage and um, no so all you really need is a pack of butter and a little bit of sugar and uh, you basically just it's like coffee carrots or something. It's delicious. Do you remember the famous carrots that were on the BBC food website? Uh... Back in back in 2009, there was an example of why truncation is not a content strategy because the carrots were glazed in cumin and honey, but the URL uh, sliced the in and honey off the carrots glazed in cumin and the result was that uh, the internet broke whenever everybody laughed at this and shared you want these these carrots glazed and cum <laughs> do you um, was that whenever you worked at the bbc uh, ryan did you did you um, did you devise that strategy i think actually it was shortly before i joined that project they launched that site uh, and then everybody that was working on that site, that site then just jumped over to develop the bbc news website and so uh, i came along and was the lead developer on the BBC Food website just after they'd solved that problem. So there was a, a piece of work to go in and make sure that you could customize the URLs of uh, every recipe so that there was nothing inappropriate published ever again. How long were you in the BBC for? Uh... I was there for six years. So I joined in Scotland in 2007 and then moved back to Northern Ireland and then just around 2012-13 they closed my post in Belfast and offered me the similar job in Manchester. And I was like, no, sorry, I want to stay in Northern Ireland, which might have been a mistake. But anyway, uh, I want to stay in Northern Ireland. So I, I took the redundancy and uh, moved on at that point. So how was that a mistake? I mean, you get to, you get to hang with Maddie and I. Yeah. I think Moira is better than Manchester. Manchester's a great city, but I kind of had done my move. I'd lived in Scotland. I wanted I came back to Northern Ireland and I had a family and didn't want to didn't want to move on so i did go to uni in manchester if i hadn't been such a if i had worked harder who knows maybe i'd still be in manchester <laughs> but life conspired to bring me home <laughs> to my uh to my parents house and uh, you know never left us sounds like there's a story behind that uh well yeah i don't know if there's much of a story i did i'm sure there's no school children listening to this but if there was i would always counsel anyone to you know maybe not even go straight into uni out of school especially now i have to pay so much for it. but like when i was at school i don't know just didn't really just drifted into a degree doing physics and then I just decided that I actually enjoyed being in the big city more than working on physics so um if I'd been paying for it myself it definitely would definitely be a real waste of money well it was a good life experience but uh, uh after a year in call centers so that's when I discovered uh actually well maybe maybe I should do something different and that's why I did go into computers by accident and yeah find something I enjoy I would advise of all you know if you don't really know what you want to do don't waste money on doing like a history degree or or whatever because you're better off seeing a bit of the world first and then deciding that it's actually worth working towards something, you know.
Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, obviously I've never used my, well, my degree, but yeah, I've never really had any occurrence to use it. Um, after, straight after I graduated, I did actually get interviewed for a job building mass spectrometers. You know, amazingly, they didn't employ me. And most people who seem to do science degrees, I don't, don't seem to really tend to go on, I think. And a lot of them anyway, do science jobs. So. I did the traditional computer science route, so I can't really offer any advice here. I actually applied for a different degree. It was my first choice. It was, it was one of the Queens that it was like electronic engineering with computer science, and it was calm. So I didn't even get a chance to do it um, and do computer science instead. Just think all the stuff we could have been building if you knew electronics as well as computers. Hey, Richard, you know I fixed my tumble dryer. I know electronics as much as the next one. I'm ready to go. I've got my soldering iron here. I, I am ready. Any any devices we need we need built. I'm I'm game. That makes me want to talk about imposter syndrome because I'm thinking about. You familiar with Dunning Kruger? No. Dunning Kruger is like a competence bias where people who are less skilled at things assume that they're they're more confident than they are, and and so we tend to come to things and go, yeah, I know this, I can do this, and we're overconfident. It's almost like the more skilled you become, the more you realize you don't know, and the more you kind of go, I'm why am I here? Surely I'll get caught out someday. I am obviously a top grade practitioner of every item on this planet, then because like <laughs> everything I do, I think I can't do it. So. <laughs> There's not, there's not too much I go into with a great deal of confidence. <laughs> Are you uh, consciously incompetent? You know you know that you don't know things? I, well, I think um, I think if you were to look at the profile of person that I would prefer to recruit in this world, it would be somebody who knows that they don't know rather than somebody who doesn't know but thinks they know or somebody who doesn't know and doesn't realise that they don't know. I guess, yeah. I guess it's a, better, it's a good trait to have, right? To at least... Yeah. I'm certainly riddled with that myself after 20 odd years of this and not that many complaints. I still get up every day and think, oh, Richard, what are you doing? I suppose what surprised me was um, like there's somebody who we all work with who would be very, very good, very accomplished. And then last year when they mentioned that they were riddled with imposter syndrome and then I was just like, what, this cannot be, you know, I, I can't imagine this, you know, and then I know that a lot of people do suffer from it, like, but, um, definitely there's times where you feel like hey i have no idea what i'm doing but uh i get i think one thing is you just can't let that stop you you just have to keep going every every project i've worked on i look back and i go yeah that was a that was a huge mess and it was all my fault and you just that's just the way it goes and you just think you always want to redo it you always think like oh if i just had another stab at that it would have been kind of perfect but you know at the end of it you just be like oh i need to re- rebuild this thing from scratch again yeah uh, but you got to fight that urge and just keep going. I have a, a go-to article that's been published on The Guardian back in 2014 that I've bookmarked and I visit regularly, uh, where it's like an opinion piece where the, the headline is basically, everybody is winging it all of the time. And the, the lead photograph is Barack Obama. And it's like, everybody in the world is just making it up as they go along. We know We, we don't really know what we're doing uh, most of the time. And that, I guess, when you look at the world, makes a lot of sense. That fills me with confidence that I can look at that and go, yeah, there are people out there who are doing more important jobs than me and they probably don't really know what they're doing. And there's a really good quote on it. I actually noted down today because I figured we might talk about this, which is we compare our insides with everyone else's outsides, yeah. which which hit home because it's like I beat myself up quite frequently because actually I don't think I'm a very good developer. And yet here I am training developers. And so you kind of you look at people and you kind of see their outward perspective of how well they're performing and you think 
they're really good, not realizing that potentially they're an inner turmoil themselves. And you're comparing what you do, which is your kind of your inner perception. I think we kind of tell ourselves that we're not very good at things and we don't realize that the skills that we have are skills. We gloss over our skills and we emphasize other people's skills. And getting into the habit of recognizing your own skills is a very difficult thing to learn. Especially having still everybody's excellent, in my opinion, that everybody who works still is excellent at their job. So things like imposter syndrome get worse because you're working with people who are competent at, every, at you know, at seemingly everything. But it's also good. I think it helps, it, it sort of helps everybody, you know, encourages people to learn more and to push to be better. And that makes yeah. and still as a company better as well. Yeah. But like, I mean, this is the problem with life in general. Like, you know, we, we look at photos on Instagram and it's what, it's a photo that was taken probably staged to make everybody seem that, you know, the world's perfect and my life's amazing. And as a developer, like you, we could go stand on a stage and talk about um, how we're an expert at Lambdas. And then the next day be asked a question, be like, oh, I don't know the answer. You know, it's easy to put this persona forward that I'm excellent, but in reality, we don't really know anything. I think it's part of what we do though. So, you know, most projects have a lot, have a lot, a lot of unknown associated with it. And like the whole, obviously the fact that technology evolves at such a quick, quick pace. There's so much unknown about it as well. And it can all just become very overwhelming. And so even as a even as somebody who's maybe say like a more junior developer, like you can maybe be sitting on a team with like uh, some others and you know they can be knocking features out really quickly and you can think, oh, they're doing a really good job. But what you realize like a year later is like they were putting all those features in really quickly, but ever since then we've been trying to fix that code. There's a whole lot, there's a whole lot of things can feed into feeling like an imposter, but you know, I think it's just actually coming to realize that, you know, why, you know, you're probably not actually an imposter. So, you know, obviously you shouldn't feel if you're working with somebody else, you should never really, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't feel intimidated by them because like the reality is they are probably, you know, by and large, are probably, you know, some of them, obviously some people are just excellent machines and whatever, and you just can't compete with that. Right. And I realize that I can't compete with that. So I don't try to compete with that. But, you know, a lot of people are just, um, yeah, faking it and whatever. And it is quite daunting. Do you think that maybe people who suffer from imposter syndrome is a sign of a problem in the team? You know, because like the, the problem is that they're looking at, at the other members in the team and seeing them churning out features or being able to solve problems and they don't understand why they're there. And, you know, they think I'm not good enough. But actually what that is, is that the team, the team needs to be sending signals to everybody that it's okay to not know stuff and actually it is important that you learn stuff and i think people people feel like it is a failure of them when they have to ask for help or when they're slower at things but in reality it's more that the team needs to support them up to get them up to speed yeah i mean of course i'm very much of the opinion that everyone should have a go with something themselves first time but obviously don't, i wouldn't recommend anyone sits for days trying to solve problems and I feel that they should always they should be made feel comfortable with the fact that nobody expects them to know stuff they don't know and that we're here to support you. People will, you know, pair with you, people will give you advice, you know, and obviously if you need to go away and learn something, we can work on that. I think that is important. I think the pandemic has made this harder as well. I think it's it made things a lot harder. Yeah, I agree. You know, like even same thing out in a minute. We we had that time together in the instill office to get to know like, how each other works and all. And I think that really helped, you know, come and working remotely. We could just sort of carry on. But if you were to start a new team with new starts to instill, I think it would be difficult to build that teamwork uh, remotely. Yeah. I had this problem last week on a training course and actually it, it revealed to me something that I'm not doing right. So I, I need to change my behavior, but we, we were doing an exercise and I broke the class of 10 people into two groups and put them into breakout rooms. 
and I thought I had explained the exercise sufficiently clearly and I gave them five minutes and then Garth and I were both on the course so we went each one of us went into one of the breakout rooms and in both rooms we walked in and there was one person sharing the screen with the rest of the group but there was essentially silence there was no discussion going on and the, the exercise was to have a discussion and it just showed me that the distributed nature that we're in now means that you just you, you need to work really hard to make sure that everybody knows exactly what to do and also has has the knowledge in their minds that it's good and okay to say I don't understand tell me again because I thought I'd explained it perfectly and nobody said can you say that again that doesn't make sense and yet they were all in their little breakout rooms not doing anything because they didn't know what they were doing and I wonder how many people on proper jobs not training uh, have that situation where they sit and they're looking at a story that they need to do some work on and they don't know what to do but they're almost too scared to say I can't do this can somebody help me well we've all been there right so we've all been sat in the room everybody's talking about x and they're making it sound like they know loads about it. They've had tons of experience, even though, you know, even though it was only, uh, it only came to fruition last year. Yeah, we've all been there, like, and uh, it's hard. You know, I know myself, everyone has different pressures. So, you know, say you're in a, in a role where maybe some client is looking for your expertise, you know, it can be hard for you to speak up and say, for a lot of people anyway, to speak up and say, I don't know. I think, I think it is a very hard thing for people to say. Um, I'm quite... Anyway, I suppose my mode of operation is quite honest. So I tend to tell people what I think, you know, and I have no qualms with telling them what I think about them personally either, you know, and so so for me speaking up is okay, but I know I've been there before where I've also sat silently and maybe thought, oh my days, I need to go home and look at some of this. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I mean, it's just getting that confidence, you know, I mean, I think it can be very intimidating, you know, I think profession we're in, it's, it's knowledge-based and skill-based and people want to, to be seen, to be recognized, to be competent and skillful and whatever so they can get ahead and yeah, it can be quite frightening. Software engineers tend to be introverted as well. I mean, it's very general, but most people who sit, who like have enjoyed sitting in front of computers most of their life are quiet, quieter than other people as well, which makes things worse too. I know I am. I, uh, I don't like uh, speaking up. I know people think that I, I talk too much, but in, I have to fight it. It's a, it's a daily battle. Even Rebecca makes fun of me because um, I don't like talking to people on the phone. And then I go into work and I be on the phone all day. And she's like, but you can be on the phone all day and work. Why can't you be on the phone like to other people? And I was like, yeah, I don't know those people. You know, so that's, uh, it's funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly like, it, like that too. I can't, I always make ways phone people. Like I, I'll bring the car into the garage to get it serviced, but she has to phone to book it for me because I don't like phoning people. <laughs> this is why this is why software engineers have invented chatbots. Maybe that's so, what a, go. go Richard. No go. No, you go Matthew. You go. I was my, my no, you go, you go, you go Matthew. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna say what I've been doing the oh, trying to get working today is to run uh, a Docker container uh, from Lambda, which I feel like we've come full circle. Like we're like, right, we'll use containers and then like no we'll use lambdas, but now I'm using containers as a lambda. So who knows where we're going to go to next? No Is that the new thing that was released last week? Yeah, yeah, we're trying it out for um, Dependeroo to try and do some um, do things like Git checkouts and something like that inside a container. Obviously, it's a lot easier if we can define the tools in the container. So um, it's actually quite nice because you can run your Docker container locally and test it, um, and it has like a Lambda emulator they call it. So you can like ping it using curl and just um, see what it does. And it works uh, right now. The issue is it's working fine locally. But whenever I deploy it in AWS, it uh, doesn't work. It's trying to 
trying to run a Java command and um, it just hangs and times out. So yeah, I think it's going to be uh, 2021 Matthew's problem to be continued. I love my future self. He's great. <laughs> So there you have it. The Instel Week Notes podcast series one is complete. I'll be back in January for another season of conversations with the Instel team. I'd love to know what you thought of our podcast. Let me know by emailing me at podcast at instel.co. The intro music is inspired by Kevin McLeod, available from filmmusic.io. And all that's left is for me to say, have a happy Christmas and a peaceful new year. See you in 2021.